welcome back to Writing the Rapids. I'm your host, Joe Balecki. This is the show where I talk to writers about writing. Very often, the writers who I talk to have been suggested to me by people who have previously been on the show. In the case of this month's guest, Olivia Kronk, she was suggested to me by Mike Correo. So if you liked that interview, you'll like this one. And if you like this interview, you'll like that one. This is the part of the intro where I ask you for money. If you'd like to leave a monthly recurring donation, you can go to patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. For, for two bucks a month, you'll get this show as soon as I'm done editing it, rather than the last day of the month. It's very often that's a week early or so for five dollars a month you'll get the very same plus a continuing serial story called jellyfish aches about a protagonist of the same name who's a very sad little man there's about a thousand words a week that get added to that so if you're into weird surreal pulpy strangeness that would be something for you to consider if you want to leave a one-time donation patreon.me slash noisemaker joe is a good place to do that as well Otherwise, the show is free for a reason. Olivia Kronk is the author of Wo Monster from Tarpaulin Sky Press, Louise and Louise and Louise from the Lettered Streets Press, and Skin Horse from Action Books. With Philip Sorensen, she edits the journal Petra. So without further ado, let's get into my chat with Olivia. Based on my comfort level, I think a good place to start is to ask you how you like to talk about poetry. <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> Let me think about it for a moment. So maybe probably a model for the way I like to talk about poetry is the way that I set it up for students. Um, I work in, I, I teach at a university that's a lot of non-traditional students. So people are coming in from all sorts of backgrounds and with varying levels of comfort with texts and things like that. But um, the tricks that I use to convey ideas about literature, I think are the same things that I'm interested all the time in all the time, hmm. which are probably to sort of always be thinking of things in juxtaposition with other things. And that might be more formal, like considering something's lineage, its connection to other pieces of literature or other types of texts, other art. But also I'm interested in sort of a reader dominated sense of the text and the sort of effect of like this reminds me of and that relationship as being a space that the poem intends without intending or a book, whatever the text in question is. So I'm really interested in juxtapositions, I guess. Um, mm. And um, I get, besides thinking about lineages and sort of um, this reminds me of or aesthetic overlaps, I'm also interested in um, the way that aesthetic influences can translate. So you might be, so a, an artist of any sort might be sort of ripping off some kind of formal technique from something but it doesn't appear in that way in the like produced text. And so I'm kind of interested in that weird sort of translation information. Um, what else am I interested in? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm also interested, as, as I was saying before, in like a reader dominated sense of the text and in the way that a writer is collaborating with a reader. And it does, 
I know that that's not exceptional to poetry, but it seems like poetry is kind of an easy field to set up that collaborative relationship because there's um, sort of the assumption, um, problematic or not, that there will be more openness or more ambiguity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of, there's there's not a lot of like expository info dumps in poetry unless that's the point of it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm not like completely married to the notion of genre. I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in like corrupted genre and um, texts kind of falling apart when they're trying to perform their genre. But I, I guess <laughs> since you framed the question as being mm-hmm. about poetry, then I was thinking of it in those terms. Um, yeah, I don't know. I might have another thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll jump in when I do. <laughs> sure. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing. I suppose, I mean, that's how I came to your work as I read it, being that uh, Mike Correo suggested you to me. I was thinking about your work kind of in the terms of his work like i know how i connect to his work so i'm imagining how he's connecting to your work as i'm connecting to it um and that kind of like influenced how i read um the two books of yours that i read where i almost wasn't looking at your work as poetry but rather like an experimental prose type of thing uh especially since the way that you place your words on the page like place your stanzas on the page and even like the space between stanzas um felt very um unique to me uh in terms of poetry and you know not that i don't it's no secret to anybody who listens to this that i I don't read tons and tons of poetry so it, it could be part of some long tradition i'm not aware of but it was the first time that i've encountered something like that so coming from a um experimental prose sort of direction really informed how i engaged with the work yeah i was the thing you mentioned about reading my work in the context of having read mike how do you pronounce his last name i always just read it it's correo correo yeah correo um i was thinking that that same thing when I was listening to episodes of your show, thinking about how you're like um, producing a kind of lineage then through this, um, these audio documents in that you're following the threads that other writers were following. And then, and then you enter into those spheres too. And that Mm -hmm. seems like a a cool other iteration of this model to just think of things in terms of juxtapositions. And then the other thing I was going to say was about um, the, the breaking of stanzas and playing around with experimental prose, that's, that is something that's of interest to me. And I'm, I'm certain I'm intentionally and unintentionally ripping people off do, <laughs> doing that trick. It's a, it's a move I like when I see on a page. So I think I kind of internalize, you know, like the, the potential of that craft move or whatever. Um, but sure. yeah, I don't, I, Uh, what was I gonna say? <laughs> I think that um, that I think that there's sort of just a problem with the way that um, genre is in some ways like um, a capitalist nece- necessity for marketing, labeling, and categorizing things, and so mm. it it kind of takes away 
the potential for merely looking at things as writing, or maybe I'm just most interested in literary work that is writing and then the genre classifications are sort of loose or open or can go in multiple directions. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that. I, I've talked before, um, how I really like, uh, like subcategorizations, particularly in music, like the idea that there's something called deep Italian psychobilly is really pleasing to me uh, in some ways. Um, but yeah, also thinking about it as like a capitalist distinction where like you have to market it in a certain way. Um, I suppose too, your your work is really the first work I've encountered um, that sort of uh, introduced me to what like hybrid genre even is. Like I've seen it in literary magazines that I've read or submitted to where they say they accept hybrid works, but I never really know exactly what that meant. Um, so like, it's interesting to me as, as a teacher, the, the teachers I've had, the writing teachers I've had who are poets um, are more... Uh, just kind of like standard contemporary, like, uh, you know, it's just, it's what they, they write poems that look how I expect poems to write. So as a teacher, how do you approach, um, you know, how do you balance those type of, uh, what you write and what you teach and what like a non-traditional student is kind of expected to understand going in? Yeah, there, there are so many different things to consider. Um, so I, I am right now teaching for the first time online this class called Hybrid Forms. Hmm. And in it, we, I, tried to, um, I tried to create a situation where we would look at texts as models and then kind of rip off their tricks and use them to produce original work so that not only would we consider hybridity as a writing mode, but also the class itself would be sort of a hybrid of a literature class and a creative writing class. And kind of, we have no workshop model in place. We're just reading, discussing, considering texts and then producing work. And then that turns into sort of large form conversation that's outside of the workshop model. Mm. Um, so in part, I think about that, like just how course organization can mimic that. What I've been stressing a lot this semester, but I always stress, but it, it's timely. I've been stressing a lot how we can consider refusal to conform to certain genre conventions as a way to buck against oppressive systems and how the uncategorizable can be a kind of monstrous text and that the notion of the monster is really useful for again refusing certain categories and how that that gets complicated and can filter out into all sorts of questions of gender and race and class and then who has access to what kind of information and who's allowed to do what kind of move inside of a text so i think about those things a lot in terms of delivering information and creating a space for the course where students will be free to try things out. However, um, when I teach like a, an introduction to creative writing class, I do, I do set up the distinctions as we move through things 
for in part so that students feel comfortable enough then to move away from them. Mm. So, and you know, some students are interested in um, in sort of more conventional stanzas, couplets, um, certain kinds of rhyming patterns, all of the conventional forms that we can name. And I try to teach those and leave that leave space for everything. Um, trying out iambic pentameter. So. One of the ways I think about it, though, is just to to come in with the interests and skills you have, but also be able to to allow the text to mutate in whatever way that happens that might be somewhat organic to the process. Wait, what was the original question? Oh, dear. <laughs> Tell it to me again. Uh, <laughs> um, it, it was something along the lines of how do you as a more, I suppose, experimental poet teach poetry to, um, you know, non-traditional students who may have more of a traditional or high school education influenced view of what poetry is. So I think you answered yeah. that. Yeah, I think I answered it. Essentially, I tried to teach it as like an empowering move. Yeah. But I... I mean, I always want to just meet students where they are and then encourage them to an exper experiment in a way that's useful to their own interests. And I would, I don't try to, um, I don't try to like teach them out of any practices unless they're, they're things that aren't yielding good material for them personally anymore. Mm -hmm. um, maybe a, another sort of like piece of this question, which is also related to the way that I write is that I teach a lot of constraint. Um, just as another avenue to consider so and that can be like the sort of like the lowest level sort of game playing constraint like right without using the or whatever mm. um to like higher order more complicated formula and things like that that we might manipulate for producing a longer form text but i what i find is that the students kind of like a combination of writing from lived experience in a way that might just be a kind of like expression, a direct expression and outpouring onto the page and mixing that up with game and constraint and other little tricks. And mostly it seems like that, that allows them to do whatever they want to do inside of their own voice. Mm. And I use constraint a lot in my own writing too. So it, it works because I'm trying out the tricks. I'm encouraging them to try out. Right. I, I find that um, a lot of the people I have on the show are somewhat disenfranchised with academia. So it's interesting and, and I don't know, I almost want to say refreshing, but that might be combative somehow. But it's, uh, you know, I, I like hearing from somebody who who's in it, um, you know, joyfully, it, it feels uh yeah may i i'm lucky because i'm at a university that like i said is a lot of non-traditional students where what is designated as a hispanic serving institution mm. um we're in chicago so we have like this where like not primarily white and um so i feel kind of lucky i'm also not tenure track i'm an instructor and um there's all sorts of complicated labor issues <laughs> related sure. to that, but I really, really like my work and um, the university 
has all the problems of an institution and of academia, but also in a way, because I'm not tenured, I can kind of check out of some of those problems and just, I was only hired to teach. Um, so I can just focus on that. I don't, of course, I wind up in all sorts of different things, but mm -hmm. um, I think uh, also maybe because, <laughs> maybe my view sounds refreshing because I completely do not believe in the academy. Um, I just think it's like the structure that I'm inside of and I understand that institutions are oppressive, but also can be, um, can offer opportunities to people who don't. And in, at where I teach, a lot of people who are taking creative writing, they're not, um, they're not from backgrounds where that would be encouraged as like a primary mode of study and then to later try to enter the workforce. They, they're often like working on something else, like say like an accounting degree or something. And then they wanna do this also because it's of interest to them. And that's a very wonderful space to work with students in because they're, um, they don't, they're not interested. They haven't been sold the sort of like sort of white upper middle class idea about pursuing literature. They just don't have that information. So it's not because it's they're they're really writing to produce art. Hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's that's an interesting um, situation to be in, I suppose. Um, I, I'm remembering a tweet that uh, Zach Smith made a couple weeks ago. That was something. Uh, to the effect of imagine if um, all pop stars in order to like be famous pop stars had to have gone to like an MFA program for uh, you know crafting top 40 pop music and anybody who tried to make top 40 pop music who hadn't been through that institution was just kind of like ignored um, which is kind of like stuck with me and I don't I don't really know don't really know why I find that writing is hard to compare to other forms of media for some reason for me writing when you're doing it or like writing when you're looking at it as writing yeah like when I'm thinking about how it's consumed I guess like to me there's not a lot of difference in how people view the validity of like a, a radio program to a movie to um you know maybe maybe even a painting um whereas writing like feels like its own beast completely where the expectations of who you are what you've done where you've been uh to be a writer is different and i don't know it's ethereal in my brain which is why i'm not describing it very well but it's it's hard to grasp the whole like writing thing if that makes any sense no it does and I um uh, somebody that my husband went to school with said years and years ago kind of as a joke but it rings true I think this is a related thing you can't um you can't like say to somebody, I'm a poet, because it sort of sounds like you're saying like, I'm a genius. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it just, um, there's something, I think sometimes I have these conversations in my introduction to creative writing class about our, our assumptions before we enter the poetry unit. 
um, and going into it, what we think of home has to be. But I think those are the same kinds of questions that people feel about hearing somebody's a writer. Um, that it's in giving that in giving that medium like a preciousness. It really um, it actually just like is sort of like an anti-art position, as if we're not like leaking art everywhere, mm. as if a radio program isn't a composition that we can like understand as a piece of art, just like we can understand a novel or an essay or um, a display in the alley or whatever, like that all of that is composed information. And so, yeah, but I, I also know what you mean. <laughs> there is like this kind of like border around writing. Um, similarly, I, like I did my MFA a very, very long time ago, but I, um, I, w I was always pursuing poetry primarily, but for a semester I did a fiction project with somebody else, we collaborated and we, I did it at an art, I did my MFA at an art school. And so we would have these like crit panels where we'd have to present work, I don't know, once a sem semester or something like that. Um, and every time I had done one of these crit panels as a poet, the things people would say were really abstract, kind of watery and so watery that I could just read it as like complimentary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's no challenge to what I was <laughs> presenting. And maybe it's because it was a form I was very comfortable in. So maybe I just carried it off smoothly. But when I went into these crit panels doing a fiction project, people just, they felt so much more willing to object to details inside of the text in a sort of like nitpicky logistical way. And so I, I think somehow that's a related thing too. what people feel that they can comment on. So in your example, like people feel they can comment on a movie, especially say like some sort of like Hollywood industry film. Mm -hmm. They that it's like available for commentary, but they won't comment on written text and especially certain written texts. And again, I think that quarantining, to use a timely word, <laughs> I think that that um, I think that just promotes again a kind of anti-art attitude, usually. Um, but but I, I mean, who knows? I mean, we're speaking as writers, so we're we're sort of observing inside and out at the same time. Right. And I'm sure you, you you've received odd comments on your work from people who aren't writers. And so they're, they're coming at it from a weird angle. And maybe sometimes it's kind of meant to be earnestly <laughs> thoughtful or kind, but it, it always can feel a little bit off, I guess. Yeah. You have to like learn a whole new language to be able to comment on a deliberate use of the language we already know yeah that's nicely put yeah um one of one of the things about poetry that i'm i'm kind of thinking about more and more as in my um non-indie lit reading i've been reading a lot of um older poetry like i've been reading uh like i read all the the norse eddas and I'm working my way through the second and third parts of the, of the Divine Comedy. And I read Beowulf like last year or something like that. Um, and how thinking about how poetry was used, uh, like the rules in poetry was used more as like a memory device 
and how like the idea of a kenning has morphed into something uh, very strange in poetry being made these days. It's not really a question in there. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> no. I like it. I was pausing to before I say anything in case there was more information. Yeah, I think about the kenning a lot, and I I teach it even in my composition courses. So besides teaching creative writing, I teach like writing one and two, the introductory gen ed courses. And um, I find it to be such an interesting device in part because I think it reveals something about the function of literature as riddle and mm. which is some something I some depending on the group or the mood or the day or whatever. Sometimes I discuss in class and we talk about um, literature as being fulfilling a desire to solve a puzzle and how the kenning kind of works to support that yeah and yeah and also that um since the kenning is this act of renaming that can be both like a, a wink to the audience to sort of like an awareness of how the the joke or the riddle works but can also be completely subjective. That seems kind of exciting and kind of um, relating to something I mentioned earlier, kind of empowering that you could rename the world with this little device um, and kind of, kind of create a contraption that is for your personal expression and for the audience's pleasure. That seems really exciting to me. Um, I, it's been a long time since I read anything that you've mentioned mm -hmm. but i um I, I like skipped around in a comparable book now i can't think of the name of it <laughs> that lays forth all I, i'm sorry i don't know the title if i find it later i'll email it to you so you know it but sure. um that lays out all of these different kennings and these different sort of riddle based poems and i do yeah i think you're right like it's like the convention is there in order to encourage the memorization process, which presumably is there to encourage the spreading of it. And mm -hmm. that's kind of awesome that it's like that the that the conventions are in place so that it can more um, properly infect larger groups of listeners. And that seems really exciting to me to think of literature as an infection. Yeah, holy cow. Um going back to what you said about literature as riddle that's very interesting when i was in the kind of basic creative writing class in college and we got to the poetry unit uh the professor said that the way that the high school teachers were probably teaching us where we're deciphering what a poem means uh is not you know how he wants us to think about poetry in that class uh like he he said in my memory that like poetry isn't a puzzle to be solved like we do not have to um like spend six hours thinking about why the caged bird sings um so long as you know we know that there's a caged bird and it's singing and what does that feel like to us like we don't i think maybe he was trying to get at like death of the author in a roundabout way now that i like say it out loud um, yeah but yeah that's interesting 
but there's like the the meme of like the writer saying oh and i'm gonna just like write down that my character had spaghetti for lunch and then fast forward to the high school english teacher saying and the spaghetti symbolizes the working man's struggle the sauce on the spaghetti is the blood that the workers have spilled uh sort of thing and 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 people like calling it ridiculous um and i suppose like as that has influenced how i think about writing like it's made reading poetry for me feel very dreamlike like i will read a page and engage with it and then almost immediately forget like everything about it like it's so uh it's so dreamlike to me that like it kind of just like goes in and out and whatever changes it makes in me are incredibly subtle yeah i like thinking of it that way um, I think I, I, I often worry that I read everything that way where I, I have, um, I just have this like impression based understanding of every text I consume. I mean, I, when I am preparing for something that I am going to teach, I make more thorough notes than my sort of like scribbled journal ideas that I might do in response to a text that's just for pleasure. Um, but Wait, I want to backtrack to the the pedagogy of the teacher who said to not solve the riddle. Mm-hmm. I that one, I I think you're right. It seems like the teacher's like positioning the death of the author, like or privileging that. And I I actually I think that can be a really useful thing to encourage to move away from trying to solve the riddle to simply decode. But I find also that people feel kind of disempowered if they're expected to merely float in the text. And so it seems like there has to be, you know, sort of like a moment by moment consideration of what you can do with it, which is why I'm always pushing this idea for just, let's just suggest context for this. Let's just make a connection between this text and something else. Mm. And then that will help us understand it. But I also think that um, the spaghetti joke, I, because I think of literary interpretation as art making also, it seems like if the, if the reader wants to imbue the spaghetti with like um, a, a Marxist critique or the struggle of the working man or whatever, it's, that seems like perfectly valid also. Um, I, I think I try, I, I sometimes I'm not successful and this is like a, a control issue as an instructor, but I try to not um, hierarchize interpretations, but to emphasize, like, to find textual evidence in support of any interpretation, which can be outlandish, but if there's evidence for it and it's sort of successfully um, marshaled into a thesis or whatever, that that probably can still work. Um, but I, again, I, I think that um, I think that there should, I guess I just think that there should be room for everything, the misinter- misinterpretation, the clear interpretation, the also the floating around in a text without knowing um, what it means or without trying to decode it or to decode it by simply um, experiencing it. But your idea of being inside of a page of poetry as a dream 
I see, I feel like I read that way too, that I just, but I, there are, there are novels I obsessively love, but then I, I'm not sure I could like recount the plot. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's just a feeling I have it. And, and I recognize too, that influences uh, outside of the text are present, like the weather or where I was, or that I was sick or that there was wind blowing against a curtain in a certain way, that all of that to me is part of the text just as much as whatever I literally read on the page. Um, but I, I also, I tend to be sort of um, absent-minded about plot and narrative. And so the, the kind of like <laughs> structure that would hold together my recounting <laughs> of what happened in a text, I sort, I'm sort of oblivious to that. I'm way more interested in mood and what the people are wearing or a gesture somebody's making at the end of a chapter or something. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm now thinking about like the only thing I remember about my reading of as I lay dying was that I read most of it near a Creek outside. Like, yeah. Oh. And so then that's the text, right? Yeah. That and, and my like remembering the James Franco directed adaptation of it which is <laughs> i don't think i've seen it <laughs> oh it, it uses so much like split screen it's very strange it's very strange he's he's a a figure that that haunts me um i think i've mentioned before on this show how i have a friend who did an mfa program and he was like they shared the same advisor so he he's read a bunch of his work and uh like unpublished work and stuff like that and uh, so he's just this strange artistic figure that that haunts me. Yeah, <laughs> that's an understandable haunting. I I forgot about <laughs> Franco's connection to the, the world of literature and everything. But yeah, I mean, it's sort of I feel like he probably he's like unfairly ribbed on the Internet for having interests outside of his Hollywood career. But it's I mean, it's it is also like sort of like problematic to, <laughs> to, to bounce around forms. I don't know. I don't actually know the gossip. If, if like he pretended to be an absolute expert, I, I, didn't he jump programs or something? I like this internet gossip about him. <laughs> oh, I don't remember. I, I feel like I was reading a Wikipedia article on him and it seemed like he had like a million different masters in like barely different, uh, like styles of of writing the there's one like gossipy story that i don't know if it's my place to to say it on the air but the description i was given of him was that he very seemed to very desperately want to be taken seriously as a man of letters um which you know coming from the pineapple express guy like there's um something psychologically in there that uh, I feel like is, is easy to connect with and also kind of like very hard to completely understand uh, seeing as how he's, you know, in the public eye. Yeah, I know. And it might be that what's wrong is not his impulse to try out different forms and experiment with the way he performs, but, um, but that he has like, 
bought into some sort of literary hierarchy like a man mm. of letters yeah. <laughs> and that concept and all the authority and bullshit that goes with that um and and it seems likely that he he did somehow buy into that and so that his like his premise is problematic and not actually his wanting to try out more things and find new ways of expression but um but yeah <laughs> wanting to be a man of letters <laughs> Yeah, I haven't thought about the word pretentious in a long time, which I think uh, speaks to how comfortable I'm getting with my own art. But um, it's that um, like the the critical eye we place on people very publicly wanting to um, get better in in whatever way, I think is uh, something to keep check on. And, and our own how we engage with others and I think yeah. he, he's probably a really good example of like how we view that yeah I I wouldn't make this analogy I don't want to make this analogy in terms of like the weight and all the exciting leaking of art that is happening but when um oh, what's his name when Pete Seeger pulled the plug on Bob Dylan's electric performance. Have you ever seen the footage of that? I haven't. So when you know like the scandal when Dylan went electric? Oh, very vaguely. It's it's interesting. And it's really interesting in part because um people just seem to be rejecting experimentation with the form completely. They just um and and that's sort of interesting as a cultural moment and what makes for authentic protest music and how the move away from the folk mode into this other mode was riling to people and people were extremely upset. There's wonderful footage from a concert, I think in London, where he like first unveils his new new mode of expression. But later on, Pete Seeger like pulled the plug on him at a major music festival. And it... Um, it has always stuck with me as a really horrifying kind of censorship and um, just a refusal to accept alternate modes of expression. And so, I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not like a Dylan worshiper, but I, I have much love for much of Dylan's work, but it does seem like there is something about the way we engage with any kind of artist and suggesting what they can and cannot do. Um, and even though, again, my man of letters critiques <laughs> stands, and yeah. I think Dylan's probably kind of fucked up in a lot of ways too. But, but, um, but I, yeah, I think you're right. The way we talk about what people are allowed to do, and the way we make assumptions about um, somebody's mode of expression, and how, as if there's constancy of the self, as if the self is not an ever evolving, complicated falsehood or whatever and so there of course would be different ways to express the self at different moments right hmm yeah you know especially like art as protest you'd think you would want that in as many forms as possible to to infect you know everybody yeah. like i i would certainly uh desire for more um 
Pete Seeger types to be in the modern country music, like top 40 country uh, today. Like I would love somebody to be um, doing like modern renditions of if I had a hammer and and stuff like that uh, playing on the, on the country station down the hall from where I work. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I know (laughs) that would be nice (laughs) in general, probably a a lot of our pop forms could use some infecting (laughs) with the, with some serious, and like well-positioned anti-fascist rhetoric. Absolutely. I want to, I want to, I want to take a hard turn here because I just remembered that I did this. So back in 2014, you did an interview with a uh, newfound and mm-hmm. at the end of it, they said, what questions would you ask? And you wrote down those questions or you answered with those questions and I wrote them down and I want to ask them to you. <laughs> to, okay. To I don't remember them. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, so these are your words. I copied and pasted them into my doc. Um, do Virginia Woolf's claim about the middle brow and Curtis White's subsequent argument against middle mind still seem relevant? And how do we aim ourselves toward an anti, no, to, toward an artistic anti-middle? Okay. <laughs> Let me think it through for a second. Well, one thing I know is that I had, when I, was thinking about that, I had recently stopped teaching the the Virginia Woolf essay about the middle brow. And then this, I forgot that was the name of the guy, but there was this Harper's piece, maybe, I don't know when it was from, maybe the early 2000s, um, talking about the middle brow as a concept, kind of as a way to critique what, um, what we call in our house, like NPR liberals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of not not people who are truly of the left they're very middle in their leftist um politics um so it was sort of a critique of that but a critique of that too as a whole like aesthetic range and not just an ideology um so anyway i used to teach those two things because i thought it was useful for the students to consider um what i saw as a really important distinction between, at the time, I saw this as an important distinction between high, middle, and low, and in part because I wanted to prioritize the high and the low, even as I don't believe in those categories, but just to to basically um, shun things of the middle. So um, since then, (laughs) I've, I've sort of I don't know. I've I rediscovered that like the the windows where you might dump high, middle, and low have shifted for me and are always shifting. And I don't want to be presumptuous about people's tastes and why they turn to an art form or or a particular text or whatever. Um, so, but I still <laughs> am committed to the idea of fucking with. Um, fucking with the idea that an artist should be producing something that falls in the middle for most people. Um, in that I, I want to have something that embraces kind of trash culture. Um, I don't use that in a derogatory way, but that world and um, say like critical positions about 
literature and art. Um, I, I think this is, that question was sort of me on the way to thinking through how I felt about hybridity in writing and, or how, not even how I felt about it, but how I could do it, what would be my trick to write in that mode. And so I've, I, I think I've sort of internalized this idea in my writing, both like in the structures on the page and in what I'm thinking about that I want to be constantly focusing on mixing high and low again, even as I, I kind of don't agree with the categories <laughs> of high, middle and low. Um, so I'm trying to think of like a, a, a good example of what such a mixture would look like. I think, And actually, since I asked that question, I just feel like people younger and savvier than myself are already doing this and considering these questions and that this sort of happened organically, especially in like what we might refer to roughly as internet culture, which I don't, I, I'm totally out of the loop. I mean, I have like a vague cursory sense of the surfaces of the internet, mm. but I think a lot of like, I like every time I see something related to TikTok, I, I understand how the, the medium itself is challenging um, borders and boundaries. And so I, I feel like a lot of people are doing this question in a much more nuanced way than, than I have access to at this time. But ha the way that I would say we aim ourselves toward that is simply to um, sort of like pursue, maybe pursue one's aesthetic desires and let that be excessive and weird and idiosyncratic and lumpy and um, and to leave that as is rather than to try to clean up. Um, I'm, I, I'm opposed to the idea that somehow, especially I think this is a word kind of thrown around in literary situations, that literary production needs to somehow be tasteful um, and smooth, digestible, that that's that's gross to me. <laughs> so I, I try to get rid of that impulse. And I, and this is also a teaching question in that I'm always trying to get rid of that impulse in class, either in a workshop situation or dealing with a student's work. Like, I don't, I don't need to clean this up. I just need to help you think about new things to do with it, expanding it or reframing it or whatever. Um, and so I am against the, the tasteful. <laughs> mm. Well, so far, this experiment is going really well. The next question you have is, what invisible face does your writing wear? <laughs> Thank you so much for pulling these out. I forgot all about this. Hmm. I think I actually just coincidentally was addressing this question of the invisible face in responding to questions about... Um, specifically my book, Will Monster, recently. So I had to like think about it. Um, I think the invisible face that my writing wears is comparable to the kinds of postures, characters, aesthetic moods and voices that I'm trying to kind of collage and emulate in my writing. And that, and the the kinds of things that I constantly return to are things like B horror movies, Vincent Price, um, like whatever happened to Baby Jane, uh, 
obviously Joan Crawford, <laughs> um, kind of campy things. I, I, um, what else do I like? Um, I, I think I, is that in this book? Yeah. <laughs> in this mm -hmm. book, I write about this true thing, which is that I really like shitty pop cultural representations of 1960s happenings. I, I like how, how it fails and succeeds to convey the form. And I really enjoy that. <laughs> I, like the, I like the surface of it, the, the aesthetics of that. I, I like that kind of thing. So, and th this might be kind of a response, also related to my response to that other question. I, I like merging kind of junk with something more Rococo or ornate. I, I, I like that mashup. Sure. I was thinking as as you were answering the first question that I was going to take your answer as a read of a uh, um, uh, a defensive vaporwave. I, and I think uh, that that holds true uh, as we go through these questions. I think that kind of vaporwave sort of does that same sort of thing, like with the ancient yeah, the ancient just sort of. And, I'm sorry, say it again. Oh, yeah. What with like the ancient ruins that they have, like the sort of um, like Greek busts, like Venus to Milo's everywhere, and then also like decaying malls and corporate culture, elevator music sort of stuff is kind yeah. of that thing. I only roughly know what Vaporwave is, which I think I, um, I tuned into because of, is there such a thing as mall wave? Uh, yeah, I think, oh dear, I'm going to, I'm going to out myself here. I think, I think the general term for that is mall soft, but yeah, it's, uh, okay. that's, that's a thing. And, uh, yeah, that's like a sub genre of, of vaporwave is specifically okay. like the music you hear in a TJ Maxx on a Wednesday sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. So I, at some point, um, a very good friend and great novelist I'll probably put on your list, Amanda Goldblatt. Get sent me this interesting piece about Mallwave, and then just because of like following internet clicks and categories, I became aware of Vaporwave. That mm -hmm. is, yeah, that is a nice connection. And I think like um, I was just writing this about my work too, so I'm sort of like repeating myself. But I I stand by this. I'm really um, for, for like my entire young adult life, and even as a kid when I first saw his work. And completely devout Joseph Cornellian. Do you know Joseph Cornell? I don't think so. He made these wonderful, kind of junky, but delightful collages of things. So that oh. collages wouldn't even be the right word, more like assemblages. Yeah. Um, but so, and um, that seems like a related concern too, to like uh, back to juxtapositions <laughs> to allow things to come together and interact and be in conversation with each other, like, like an ensemble or whatever, to have that all come together. Oh yeah, I'm Googling this now. This kind of reminds me of um, Sarah Gerard's collage art that she was doing for a while. And I feel like David Lynch does sort of like a darker form of this every now and then. But yeah, these are beautiful. Yeah, yeah they're wonderful. Yeah, I was gonna mention David Lynch too, um, who's all, always an influence. Um, I mean, I think as I've aged, I'm 
way more critical of what is happening in Lynch's texts, especially, did you watch the most recent, the Twin Peaks like reboot or whatever mm-hmm. it was called? Yep. Um, I loved it, but I think there's a lot of race and gender critique to be made about that text. Mm-hmm. And so I've been thinking a lot about how, how, <laughs> how to do the David Lynch tricks, but also be interrogating those problems. But yeah, Lynch is a longstanding obsession <laughs> of mine. Yeah, you're in the right place. I, him and Blake Butler, I think, get mentioned on this show more than anybody else. <laughs> and then the third question you have is, what relationship exists between the psychedelic experience, which you've capitalized, which I really enjoy, however, and through whatever media a respondent has pursued such, and teenage television melodramas? I feel like this is kind of the same sort of thing, that like higher level enlightenment samadhi sort of psychedelic thing and then like uh degrassi or whatever yeah i think um let's see i wrote that in 2014 Mm -hmm. i had like come out of a period of time when so my daughter was born in 2011 so um like i had i i think i had a very short leave of absence more when she was a newborn and so I was watching this wonderful but horrible show called Ringer. It was Sarah Michelle Gellar trying to like restart her career after Buffy. And Mm. she had an evil twin and they were like caught. There was like one of the twins died and they were caught up in this ridiculous plot. But it was essentially like a teen drama, but with like a a sort of aging Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yes. Um, Yeah, right. Oh, dear. It's not available free anymore right now, but it sometimes floats around on the various subscription services. I haven't I haven't looked lately, but it's it's terrible. But I I loved it, and that's like when my daughter was newborn. Is so I was watching that, and I was watching this show that's that's way worse than that called Vampire Diaries. It's like a mm-hmm. one of those CW teen shows. Um, but I, I mean, I actually like found those shows really instructive for because I was kind of studying the soap opera as a form and thinking about like the kind of soap opera I actually like to look at. Oh, and the fake soap opera inside of the original Twin Peaks. Yes. The whatever, Invitation to Love. And then the original Dark Shadows. And I was thinking about all those kinds of things and that space and teenage melodrama and stretching out and slowing down time. Um and so, what was I going to say? I, so I was thinking about that as like a space to con- in which to consider the psychedelic experience, which for me at that time was like no longer like shrooms or whatever. It was like breastfeeding, mm. <laughs> but, uh, but it was the psychedelic experience and like having a newborn and watching a, a baby grow in your presence. It's, it's really, um, it's really psychedelic. <laughs> and so I was, kind of I was just sort of like forcing the intersection of those things because it was of interest to me but also it did seem like an interesting idea that you could think about your experience of psychedelia as having to do with your spending of time and and you know like something not just reverie but reverie could be part of it but also like watching a show and and you like with with the newborn, you like sit a lot with the newborn or, or once they can like crawl around, you're just kind of like sitting, <laughs> mm-hmm. watching them move around. Um, we used to call it baby TV. It was like 
(laughs) (laughs) watching this live thing happen. Um, So that was kind of my answer, or that was my thinking behind that question. And I guess that's my answer to it. I was thinking about time and psychedelia and then these dumb, shitty TV shows, which I'm not ashamed of or anything like that. No. I guess that might be a good example of my high-low interests. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm like watching shitty TV shows like that right now. So, sure. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's not well, a passing well, fancy. <laughs> my, the, the amount of Riverdale my wife and I have watched is startling, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's that same sort of thing. I described that show to, to one of my friends as post-value. Like, it's it's almost <laughs> like watching just like pure hedonism like it's the horniest show i've ever seen that doesn't even have lots of sex in it just like everything in that show is so charged with like raw emotion um even though after the first season it makes no sense what's happening like it's a psychedelic or i I slipped and said psychedelic i was going to say surrealist it's like a surrealist experiment like it's crazy like breton could have directed uh riverdale and it would have come out no different yeah Uh, the cw Um, is ripe for that it's like this perfect like modern day caligula roman bathhouse sort of channel yeah. yeah i absolutely i love it as like a study in um, the show as a concept. And I think I had heard that the Riverdale people pitched it as Twin Peaks meets um, Betty and Veronica Archie comics. Mm-hmm. And and so like more of this idea, you just like collage these things together and then see what emerges there. Yeah. Uh, I'm not caught up on the whatever the current season is that's posted to Netflix. I'm not on, on that. I just I haven't had a chance, but I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll be back to it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Werner Herzog came had a it was an interview or an article about him came out recently in the past couple of months where he talked about how he loves garbage TV, saying the poet must not look away. And I thought that was kind of the silliest thing at the time, but now I'm I'm coming to the conclusion that I always come to, which is that Werner Herzog was right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we haven't come to that conclusion too. And then if if he could say that the poet poet must not look away in his voice too, that's a good it's oh, yeah. a good side. Um, yeah, yeah, we're we're kind of committed to a lot of garbage TV too. I that's one of those spaces too where like I I sort of feel uncomfortable with the boundaries. Like I'm not opposed to watching say something like Grey's Anatomy. But it's just not garbagey enough for me. Mm-hmm. I want it to be a little more. I want there to be like supernatural or sleaze or something. Yeah. And so, like I am totally interested in dumb soap opera format as like a thing to study and watch for pleasure. But um, I don't know that 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 kind of show. Even I'm speaking like from zero experience. I haven't watched it, but um, that kind of thing I assume has been made. It's like making something junky more palatable and tasteful for the viewer and i'm just not interested i want yeah. <laughs> i want it to be really stupid and garbagey i don't want it like smoothed over yeah it's not self-aware enough um yeah. of its of its value which is a bad word 
Um, yeah, and we we recently watched Cobra Kai, which is constantly described as better than it has any right to be. And it's sort of like the aging dude version of that. It's like the 40-year-old the dad version of Riverdale in a lot of ways. Like, it's so... It's so, like... It's manly, but but in a way that it knows that, you know, toxic masculinity exists, even if its characters don't. There, There's a scene in which... Uh, William Zabka's character is is on the phone with people because he's getting a whole bunch of new students to Cobra Kai and, and somebody says like well my kid is non-binary and he's like nine non what is this a prank call like it's so like he's so stupid like it's almost as if the character was transported from the 80s to the 2000s and aged but didn't live through any of that time and yeah like, we just concluded it last night. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh man, that last yeah. episode. Oh, that was something. Yeah, I I thought the first season was so much stronger. Mm-hmm. I, I I often feel like oh this should have just been a one off thing and then it just stays this tight little interesting weird object, and the second season had a lot of bad writing. But yeah, the final episode was kind of hilarious for its like over the top. Um, like it just turned the volume up on every moment of drama and that was interesting but you're right it's kind of like 40 year old dad hyper mode <laughs> yeah yeah just like oh man however much money Coors put into that show they uh I think they're gonna recoup their investment yeah, our friends pointed that out. I had missed it until we were, they mentioned it, and then then we were really in the second season, and I saw it over and over again. And they're referring to the beer as whatever it's called, Banquet. <laughs> yeah, Coors Banquet. Oh, yeah. man. Um, we are approaching an hour. I think... Oh, yeah. I think the the best way to end this is, is usually I give people, like, a chance to to plug something or, 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 or whatever, like have the final word. Um, and you are more than welcome to do that, but I would encourage you to, to have the interviewer ask a question that somebody in the next six years can dig up from this podcast and ask you on, uh, an interview happening in 2026. Okay. (laughs) Let's do the latter. (laughs) All right. In your own writing, what, aesthetic influences do you allow to infect you and for what purpose? I'm reading from the section of the book of the new book called Interroporn. And in it, there are interrogating voices that are marked with all capital letters and I've tried out performing that with a slightly different modulation of my own voice, and I'll try to do that here without it getting too garbled over the speakers. Heard the sudden thud of a blow, heard Griselda felt Drusilla nearby, Giselle and Barbara Eden now laughing on the balcony. Griselda was seeing her ruby ring reflected in the glass sliding door and seeing it all so terrible, feeling awful bad in her knee-length cotton hosiery and black high heels, and just the bad, bad feelings of why did she get so high, the good first feeling of weed gone now, and now too much fear. And you know, 
that almost all girls delight in the jeweled ankle straps. Just put them on, Griselda, when will you? I demanded my old man be his own forecast of lace on the bridge in fog. A soft kind of shame, shame face, shame face caught in the rear view mirror. It was a rather vilifying possession of his body, a contaminated skull mirror crack the being poured into time. And if you were in the room, what question would you ask us? What ask say and always reading a book just to stand up and die in village years? In what self-swallowing hole do you now? To whom am I now speaking? Where is the interrogator? For whom do you speak? Whose mouth does wear these stiletto charmers, huh? I hate for others to see my face as it appears in a mirror. Did you ever watch the 1991 exorcism on 2020? My brother and I shrieked with laughter and thrill, good Catholics. When I think of voices on a page, I sometimes think of the girl on the screen, but more often I think of our replaying, reenacting the television event, a private giddy theater, a script to which only we had access while walking to school. We did this many days in a row. The information moving across different media, squirming in a cord, squirming into our gaze, squirming through holes in time and memory. Are you listening to the Francois R.D. album right now? I am starting to worry that my fashion observations are surveillance. But now we're in danger of reading the Dear John ahead of the character, oh tricky, minxy cinema. Cinema can do all eyes, can see all the damn women sucking on all the Foucauldian operators. And I have more acute observation skills than do you. And I understand the game is played in costume. But then, summer. I was a high-rise lifeguard in a cute bikini and pale blue nail polish. I mean, seriously, this part is real. I was slender and 17 and working a pool on top of a residential high-rise in Chicago's Gold Coast neighborhood. I spent my days thusly, scrub the deck with bleach for two hours in the morning, take a water break, put my uniform shirt back on over my bikini, check the chlorine, greet and watch the daily swimmers, rich people with their weekday mornings free, one old man, an anesthesiologist at Northwestern who seemed smitten, eat lunch, sit on the mostly empty pool deck, and read about, drown in tender night Zelda and the rest of them, Oh, my blue nail polish, my long legs, if you could have seen it, the French Riviera, the gin and fights and all of it. I was teetering over Lake Michigan, atop this silvery phallus of a building, on top of this for real shit. Moms who go to the grocery store in a t-shirt and jeans and big earrings, like moms who go after work in nylons and gym shoes, work clothes, uniforms, like moms who buy diet right, like moms... Too many moms to know. My old contemptuous attitude's gone now. Poisoned Bloody Mary, tipped over houseplant, the huge imperialist view over a body of water. Remember how people on TV used to get hit over the head with flower vases and fall down in the foyer? I was at the movies then. 
If you just pass me my purse, I'm absolutely certain I can produce a ticket. The only strange thing about that day was that I swear to God I saw an old-timey demon face peeking up over the carpet block slide thing at the back of the movie lobby. But then when I asked Drusilla, this is straight up pointillism and you know it. Is this pointillism? Do you recognize this pipe? Is this bag yours? This bloody bra? Is this pointillism? I should bring you to my circle of witch trees and electronic drumming machines lifting your woolen skirt and devout as you are, little mommy, you know, and a limp, cold sore, a socially ill at ease grimace does not register on video, not at all. And you laid laden with lizard brooches and howling like, like no mother I ever seen. I'm still glad of the play on in which event is bottom poetry. That's my place and I know it. She could see the graphs laid right over the room then, in air, in concepts, in quiet smoke trees, in slow-mo out the window, smoke, shake, no, no, must get the lawyer in here. When you stepped onto your bus, were you paranoid? Ma, if you read the tabloids about my being in the crime's pocket, my eyeliner smeared to graveyard sex and my trunk full of bad, bad things, would you call me up and feign surprise? Ma, how does this hat look? Miss Otis regrets?